Hello all and warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales one-person spare room-based true crime podcast that looks for those cases that you may not know, sometimes you may not even believe, from the shores of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these dark tales is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I'm not mentioning Peaks here today, he already fawns enough and I don't want to give him a bigger head than he's already got. You guys are the wonderful enthusiasts who tune in each time and keep me wanting to work as hard as Barry White's belt at doing the show. I'm made up as I always am to have you joining me here today. New friends welcome, old friends welcome back, and I hope that as you're listening, that you and yours are all good and you're all well. So instead of starting with thanks this episode, I start instead with some exciting news. The world's number one true crime event, CrimeCon, partnered with Crime and Investigation, is coming to London over the weekend of the 12th and the 13th of June 2021. Now it's the ultimate true crime weekend and a chance for all true crime enthusiasts out there to learn from leading criminologists and experts and get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, hear from the families of victims and survivors, gain insight from the police force as well as taking a dive into unsolved and unknown cases as well as the bigger known ones. There are so many immersive experiences to be had there. Over its five stages of content it promises to be a fascinating weekend and you can head on to the CrimeCon website for full details. Now CrimeCon also affords you the opportunity to meet some of your favourite true crime podcasters during the event. With more than 20 you'll be appearing on Podcast Row there, including myself. I'll be there for the entire weekend alongside some of the other UK hosts including Adam, Chantel, Sinead, Ben and Rosie, Mike, Bethan and Mark plus plenty of others from further afield and we'd love you to come and join us, maybe even say hi with a pint in the bar afterwards. Limited tickets to CrimeCon are available now, and when purchasing, if you use the unique code ENTHUSIAST at checkout, you'll receive a 10% discount on your purchase. The organisers are also offering full refunds or transfers if we're still bogged down by the bloody apocalypse come June. So for more information and to get yourselves there, just visit crimecon.co.uk and remember that code ENTHUSIAST for your 10% discount. I'm very, very excited to be a part of it and I look forward to seeing some of you guys there to say hi. And now the thanks. Firstly to both my returning and new Patreon supporters with shoutouts this time around for Rachel Gooch, Jane Burwood, Mary McRae, Catherine Donnelly, Cheryl Remsberg, Susan Papp, Naomi Russell, Lisa and William Tower and David Hannifan who have edited their pledges. What can I say, you guys ruled completely, you really do. Thank you so much, and hopefully you've devoured your way through the bonus episodes that you get for being a supporter. There's almost a full series worth of unreleased ones there now, with bonus episode number 33 coming in just a couple of days. So if you want to be like these kind folks and get yourself extra enthusiast tales such as Devil in the Doll's House or Sanctuary, Horrors Over the Holidays or Death in Highgate Woods, Then it's very simple to do, you just head over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, or you don't even need to do that, because there's an ever-present link within the episode show notes. Quicker than a copper lit up a fag in Des, because I'm sure that most of you watched it, and it was truly excellent, wasn't it? You can be hearing these tales and several others, all for less than the price of a pint that you can have while stood apart from six of your mates until 10pm, but not your family unless you throw a six, I would imagine. Who knows? 
This time around then, I'm continuing with the tale I began last time around because there's a bit to this multi-parter of family's fight. So if you haven't listened to part 1, you're better off stopping here and checking that one out first or else this will make as much sense as our bloody lockdown guidelines do. If you've done that, then in part 1 we heard of the horrific savage murder of 16 year old Derby girl Lynn Siddons back in 1978. We heard our determined and worried family, knowing when Lynn went missing that this was no case of her running away, made their own inquiries when they felt police were quite lackadaisy about it and how it took pressure from a member of parliament sympathetic to the family for police to be seen to be doing pretty much anything. Lynn's body was found shortly afterwards, and almost as soon as it was, police had a suspected, and indeed soon self-confessed killer in custody, 15-year-old Roy Brooks. Taken to trial, after four days of proceedings it took the jury just 20 minutes to acquit him of all charges. Despite two very detailed statements he'd made describing his involvement, the second of which he repeated in court and could not be shaken from. Why was he acquitted? Because there wasn't a person in court who didn't come out of there convinced that the actual killer had been the main witness for the prosecution and who was facing no charges. Unprepared to accept that Lynn's killer was walking around free, the Siddons family made a vow at a graveside that they would not rest until a killer faced justice. So let's hear how they went about it. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. There's also the use of a racial slur and derogatory terminology that forms part of a statement repeated within the episode that some may find offensive. Again, I must stress that these are categorically not the views of myself or the show, but are repeated here to adhere to the canon of the story. We always go all or nothing, and as the tale progresses, both this episode and the following, I hope all will become clear as to why I've repeated verbatim. I'll certainly try to make it do anyway. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for part two of A Family's Fight in an episode I've entitled The Haunting of Michael Brooks. Following Roy Brooks's acquittal then, remarkably both Derbyshire Police and the offices of the CPS failed to bring any charges against Michael Brooks, and so dissatisfied with this were the Siddons family that they began to prepare their own campaign, overwhelmed with the support of the majority of the Derby public, who had their own strong feelings about a killer they believed was walking free. And almost immediately, life for the Brooks family became unbearable in Sinfin. Michael Brooks was now shunned by his neighbours and acquaintances, and one evening, shortly after the trial had concluded, when he went out for a pint, he was abused and spat upon in a pub by a group of girls. The family would receive anonymous hate-filled letters and telephone calls, had bricks and eggs thrown at the house and through their windows, and on one occasion, opened the curtains one morning to see daubed on the front garden path, in large white painted letters, Murderer. A rope, fashioned into a noose, also hung above the front door. Now you'd be off from all that, wouldn't you? Who would stay anywhere with such a reception like that? The incident that made up the Brooks's mind to leave Carlisle Street, however, involved their seven-year-old daughter, Tracy. She was playing one day on a Sinfin playground when three boys, themselves pre-teens, placed a rope around her neck and, according to her father, attempted to strangle her leaving rope burns upon her throat. 
Luckily, the Brooks's next-door neighbour intervened before this went further, but it was enough for the Brooks, that was, and they decided to find a home elsewhere. In January 1979, they were rehoused by the council, moving a few miles across Derby to number 59 Macklin Street, but by this time, the Brooks family were just beginning to accept that public disquiet has no boundaries, and the campaign wouldn't be stopped with a case of out of sight, out of mind because whatever they did or wherever they went, such was the level of sympathy that the Siddons family had following Roy's acquittal, that complete strangers who had recognised the family from the publicity of the crime came up to express personally their sorrow and disgust at the result. As such, Flo Siddons soon had a veritable network of sympathisers, and therefore spies, so there was nowhere that Brooks could hide without it filtering back to the Siddons family. But as soon as the trial had finished, and as much as it would stick in your craw with someone that you were convinced had literally gotten away with murder walking around free, the Siddons family had tried to launch a legitimate campaign to see Lynn's killers face justice. They were still reeling from the fact that Brooks hadn't been arrested and charged immediately after Roy's trial, based upon Roy's testimony, Brooks' own piss-poor testimony, and the summing-up remarks of Mr Justice Mace, they were totally unable to comprehend it. So as the weeks passed and he was still walking free, and Derbyshire police seemed to be doing absolutely nothing to make this right, Flo decided that, if you want something done, then do it yourself, and it was time to grab the bull by the balls. And the Siddons' first port of call was to the person who'd helped them so many months before, again when Derbyshire police had seemed to be doing nothing, and who was to become a great friend and ally to the Siddons' family, MP Philip Whitehead. Philip Whitehead now sat and wrote to the then Chief Constable of Derbyshire Police, Walter Stansfield, with a friendly reminder, shall we say, of the very real public disquiet that a girl had been horrifically murdered in the area, and there was no one facing a murder charge for it. Basically, come on Walter, get your troops to pull their fingers out of their arses. Now Stansfield did reply to this, claiming that he was well aware, and of course, the investigation was still alive. But what they were actually doing about it was anybody's guess, and to the Siddons, they couldn't see any apparent action that Lynn's killer was still being pursued. So they decided to do something themselves. In the first few weeks of 1979, Flo, Gail and Cynthia sat in the lounge at No. 1 Carlisle Street designing a series of posters and placards. Each placard that was created carried a different photograph of Lynn underneath the slogan, Who Killed Lynn Siddons, printed in orange ink. The family also had hundreds of posters and bumper stickers made up depicting the same asking the same question and inviting people to get in touch to join and support their campaign for justice. Other posters, meanwhile, ones that Flo got a friendly word of advice from more than one person that they could land her family in trouble with the law, depicted the face of the man the Siddons family wanted brought to justice for the murder, Michael Brooks. Unconcerned about this, the family went ahead and plastered the city with hundreds of them. They were given to drivers and householders to display in their windows and were fixed to doors, notice boards, trees and lampposts, particularly in the Macklin Street area of Derby, letting the residents of Macklin Street, if any of them didn't yet realise, exactly who their new neighbour was. To keep up the pressure on both Brooks and to lambast police for their perceived failure to bring Lynn's killer to justice, 
The family also decided to collect signatures on a petition that was worded as follows. We are dissatisfied with the handling of the Lynn Siddons case by Derbyshire Constabulary and disturbed that at this late point the murderer is still at large. We are therefore seeking assurance that the police are still pursuing inquiries and that the case will be speedily concluded. They touted this petition everywhere, networking amongst the many supporters they'd already gained and sending them heading into shops, pubs and factories around the district of Derby to do so. The family had the support of countless people already, but on the morning of Saturday 24th of January 1979, Derby was able to measure its support for their cause. Flo, Gail and Cynthia, flanked by Keith and Barry Siddons, led a large procession through the city centre, consisting of countless supporters carrying placards containing slogans such as Lynn's dead, how many more? and Lynn's murderer must be found. Its goal being to bring awareness, to collect more signatures, and to show police that they hadn't forgotten Lynn, so nor should the police. Now they got the signatures, they got more than you could imagine, but they also gained more and more of an entourage, and by the time the protest had reached its destination, the city police headquarters on Derby's historical Full Street, in the shadow of its cathedral and the silk mill, it was several hundred people strong. Here, the culmination of it was a peaceful yet firm and highly vocal protest outside the building, heard by several of the senior detectives who'd been involved in the investigation. Flo said later, None of them dared show their faces. They were probably too embarrassed. They knew who had killed Lynn Siddons, but they weren't doing anything about it. On the 6th of March 1979, accompanied by Philip Whitehead, by that time a firm friend of the family with a genuine concern and a staunch supporter for justice for Lynn, Flo, Gail and Cynthia handed in their petition to a meeting of the police committee at the Derbyshire County Council headquarters in Matlock, hoping that pressure from its members would spur life into the investigation. Now it wasn't something they could ignore either, this petition, it was no post-it note filled with me, him, Auntie Enid and Mrs Bloggs's little lad and that's it. The petition was some 6,000 names strong, all supporting the Siddons' demand that Lynn's killer be brought to justice. Meanwhile, the object of all this, Michael Brooks, was also vocal as he continued to publicly deny that he'd had any involvement in the murder. On Friday the 2nd of February 1979, the case was featured on a regional BBC News show, Midlands Today, and aside from hearing from members of the Siddons family about their campaign, Brooks was also spoken to for the show. Looking relaxed, sat at home on his sofa next to his wife Dot, Brooks told the reporter about the catalogue of events in the hate campaign that had led to the moving house, before being asked about the murder. The conversation is as follows. Reporter were you involved in the attack on Lynn Siddons? Brooks, no I was not. Reporter, in any way? Brooks, no. Reporter, do you think that people still believe, despite the verdict of trial, that you were involved? Brooks, quite a few people, yes, I would definitely say so. I've not really moved since we left Sinfin. I've not really moved out of my home. I've always stayed in the Derby area. Friends of my family and even my mother have come down here to visit me at my address and told me she's heard people trying to make an accusation against me. 
Now, if you head over to the episode show notes, you can see a clip of Brooks being interviewed at home by Midlands Tonight. And apart from checking it out just to see his wife's unbelievable and enviable afro, and how much he looks like something Jim Henson got fed up of making halfway through, dressed like a bloody hutch wannabe, check out the demeanour on him. It's a unique thing to see in a case featured on the show, really. So while he's on the telly giving it the I'm innocent lot, he isn't locked up, is he? which meant to the Siddons that the police weren't doing their job properly, and in what was very nearly this episode's subtitle, if you want something done, do it yourself. So the Siddons family took over the investigation themselves, practically. If police couldn't find the evidence to nail Lynn's killer, then they would. They began with a crime scene. Now, how even thinking about that somewhere so close to home must have been for them, I can't even begin to imagine. I know how I've felt when I've been on location for some episodes and I'm completely detached from it, so for it to be so close and so personal, that's got to be something else, hasn't it? So what Flo and the family did was contacted a local treasure hunting club. I had a bit of a debate with a workmate of mine about whether this sounds ace to be in or shit. Don't know. What do you think? And they asked them to take their metal detectors down to the area of the Trenton Mersey Canal where Lynn had been killed looking for the murder weapons. Although police had found the plastic handle of a carving-type knife near the body, its blade was missing. There were also deeper stab wounds to Lynn that suggested a different sheath-type knife had also been used, and neither of these had been found. Now, having about as much faith in the police to have done a thorough job looking for these as I have that corona beer kills the coronavirus... Flo Siddons asked them with a sincere yet forthright take-no-messing nature that she had. As I said, this was a remarkable woman. And there wasn't a member of the club who didn't oblige, each of them filled with equal measures of sympathy for the Siddons and admiration for their pursuit of the campaign. But although they spent a full weekend thoroughly scouring the area where Lynn's body was found, they found nothing. However, another search one that showed the thoroughness that the Siddons were going to, leaving nothing or nowhere to chance, did come up with a right result. When the Brooks family had been rehoused from 27 Carlisle Street at the beginning of January 1979 and moved to Macklin Street, the property hadn't stayed empty for long, but whilst it was empty, Flo and Gail had had a good shufty round looking through the windows and outside in the rear garden and had discovered a quantity of pornography that was partially burned. Now a charred jazz pamphlet isn't evidence of a murder though, and before they could search further themselves, suspecting that perhaps there may be evidence buried in the garden, a new tenant moved into number 27, Mick Hardy Thompson. Flo and Gail went and introduced themselves, and Mick, of course knowing of their campaign and again being a sympathiser, agreed without hesitation that if he should find anything whilst carrying out his intention of renovating the rear garden, then he would let them know. A few weeks later, one Saturday morning he was digging over part of the back garden to make a vegetable patch, when his shovel struck something metallic buried in the earth. A sheath knife. Realising the potential of what he'd found, Mick Thompson attempted to get in touch with Flo, but she was away that day, so he contacted police at Pear Tree Police Station. However, there were no detectives who'd been involved in the case available, Apparently searching for murderers was a Monday to Friday thing back then in Derby. But fair play, a uniformed officer cycled over and took possession of the knife. And promptly lost it. 
This possible murder weapon was either lost en route back to Peartree Nick or was mislaid once there, and it was never found. Now, you'd already think that was deplorable, really piss poor that, wouldn't you? Okay, so the following week, when Mick was digging again, this time in a different part of the back garden, he dug up the remnants of some sodden clothing. There was a canvas shoe, a shirt, and a partially burned pair of trousers. Now this time Flo was home, and so Cynthia was straight around to mix with a plastic bag, which these clothes were placed into and taken to the Siddons family solicitor. He in turn took this to the police. And the police managed to lose this bag of clothing as well. Now if it wasn't as serious as it was, you'd think it was part of the bloody naked gun films or something, wouldn't you? Two massively important pieces of potentially vital evidence, gone. Whether this was through sheer police incompetence, or was deliberate even, perhaps not wanting the embarrassment that they'd handled the initial investigation so poorly to be highlighted, who knows. I'm not saying this was the case, but for two items to be both lost, makes you think, doesn't it? After the second piece of evidence was found by Mick, like never on its day off, police now decided, for the first time I stress, to carefully dig over the entire rear garden of number 27. Like, perhaps this should have been done a bit earlier, say when you had a statement from someone living at that address who had admitted murder and you didn't have the murder weapon. Just a thought. It's surely routine to take the house and garden apart, and yet it never was. Nothing else was found buried, however, that would help advance the case, so it was back to searching further, digging deeper, while still constantly reminding Brooks of their presence, not wanting to let up on him for a second. Now I must stress, the entire Siddons family was involved in the campaign, and each worked tirelessly, absolutely driven by the thought of the young girl they each loved having been so horrifically murdered, and a killer, the person they knew in their heads and hearts was a killer, walking free. But no one personifies the campaign more than the matriarch, Flo Siddons. Well into his sixties at the time Lynn was murdered, Flo still worked full-time at the former Norvik shoe factory in Derby's Webster Street, and following Roy's trial and acquittal, after the Brookses had moved to Macklin Street, just before eight o'clock each morning, Flo would hurry from Carlisle Street to catch the number 88 bus from Sinfin into Derby. Her walk from the city centre to Webster Street took her past the former Pennine Hotel at the corner of Macklin Street, and by 8.30 each morning, come rain, sunshine, whatever, Flo would spend 15 to 20 minutes standing just outside the hotel, looking accusingly over to the terraced house at number 59, where the Brookses could clearly see her. It was the reason that she took an earlier bus. Sometimes she'd even cross over the road, go up to the door and place an envelope containing a sealed signed letter through the letterbox before heading off to a job as a machinist. Each signed letter accused Michael Brooks of stabbing Lynn Siddons to death. Flo said later, He knew I was watching all right, the whole family knew. Sometimes the curtain would twitch, they knew I was there watching them. It was quite deliberate, I was haunting him, I wanted to remind him every morning that I knew what he'd done and I wanted him to know he couldn't get away with it. Now it wasn't just Flo who kept up this determined stance, but Gail and Cynthia also. Gail and her husband John used to regularly keep watch on the house, always in the same position, 
making sure that Brooks could see them, wanting him to be uncomfortable. Gail said later, We never said or did anything except watch the house. We wanted Mick Brooks to believe we'd hired someone to kill him. The idea was to worry him day and night and make sure his conscience got no rest for what he'd done to Lynn. Cynthia, however, the impulsive one of the Siddons, you'll come to hear just how impulsive shortly, was a bit more active. She told years later, We used to go there late at night and smash his windows, then we'd drive off at high speed. We used a borrowed car so it couldn't be traced to us if anybody got the number. One night my husband Gordon went to the door and shouted through the letter box, We're coming to burn you out. The upstairs window was flung open and Brooks leaned out wailing, Police, police, please help me. Someone wants to murder me. So the Siddonses were making sure Brooks felt threatened and aggravated alongside his wife, who they believed was harbouring a killer. Flo said, It was a deliberate campaign. We wanted to make life hell for him. We wanted to worry him day and night so that he didn't get a moment's peace. He may have got away with it legally and kept his freedom, but we were making damn sure he didn't enjoy it. And this wasn't just confined to in private, it was very public too. On one occasion, just before Christmas 1979, Flo saw Mick and Roy Brooks shopping in the Woolworths store in Derby City Centre and making her way as near as she could to Brooks, regardless of who else could hear, hissed when she was just within a few feet of him. You murdering bastard. Now it wasn't loud enough to cause a massive scene, but it was enough to get the message across. Without a word, Brooks grabbed Roy's hand and they rushed out of the store into the crowds of Christmas shoppers where they disappeared. So Brooks was copping it like this when he was in public. He was being besieged much more at home by the relentless Siddons family and it had a knock-on effect. Dot Brooks was shunned also. It widely believed she was harbouring a killer and even their daughter Tracy, just eight years old, was being taunted at school with chants of Your dad's a murderer. It all proved too much to cope with, so what did Brooks do? He thought that a fresh start was the best thing to do, for himself, so on the 3rd of April 1980, he upped and ran off with a teenage girl that he'd been seeing on the side, a mixed-race 19-year-old named Carol Dunworth, who for some reason found the much older Brooks attractive and appealing. If you head over to the show's Instagram page, there's a picture of Michael Brooks up there. See what you think. Personally, I think he fell off the top of the ugly tree and twatted every single branch on his way down. But beauty is in the eye of the beholder, I suppose, isn't it? Anyway, Brooks and Carol Dunworth decided to start a new life, working on a fairground in the town of Mablethorpe in Lincolnshire, where they'd secured a dilapidated caravan to live in, in the back garden of a house just outside the town of Skegness. Living the dream. Have a word with yourself, Carol. Bloody hell. Now, as you can imagine, Dot Brooks was feeling all sorts at this, left a pariah, losing her husband to a much younger lover, distraught, jealousy, fury, you name it, it manifested itself in a mad desire to hurt Michael Brooks and to get revenge. So one Sunday morning, she picked up the telephone, knowing the way that she could hurt him most. Which we shall hear about following a word from the episode sponsor. The episode is sponsored by Care of, a wellness brand that makes maintaining your health goals easy with a customised vitamin plan that supports you long term and helps you feel your best today. 
Kerov's products are formulated with good-for-you, scientifically-backed clean ingredients that can make taking your vitamins and supporting your desired health goals attainable thanks to your daily individually wrapped packets that will have you into a healthy routine in no time. And what you receive is totally up to you. You can follow Kerov's expert recommendations or you can adjust your pack at any time to suit you if your personal specific wellness goals change. To get these personal recommendations, it's a simple case of filling out Kerov's smooth, sleek and easy online quiz, which asks you a series of easy questions that cover everything about your lifestyle, your diet and any health concerns and specific goals you have. For example, perhaps you want to focus on your fitness or improving your sleep or stress levels, or you just want to look after your general health that bit more. Then based on your answers, the experts formulate, they do the magic and within five minutes, because that's all it takes, you'll have a recommended 30-day supply of nutrients tailored for your goals. Now I filled out the quiz myself with a focus upon my stress and sleeping patterns and I was pleased just how quick and easy it was to do. It covered everything to get an honest picture of me and my goals, but it didn't feel intrusive and it wasn't boring to do so. I also liked that it wasn't just a list of your common vitamins, say your iron or your fish oils either. Kerov also recommend adaptogenic herbs and supplements that although recent research studies have proven their effectiveness, they're not commonly used in the Western world, such as ashwagandha, all of which are transparent as Kerov provide extensive information about the research and sourcing behind all of their products that's available to view on their website. So for 50% off your first Kerov order as a listener to the show, head over to takecareof.com T-A-K-E-C-A-R-E-OF.COM and enter the code T-C-E-5-0. That's TakeCareOf.COM T-A-K-E-C-A-R-E-OF.COM forward slash T-C-E-5-0. One Sunday morning, a couple of weeks after Brooks had done his flip to the seaside, Cynthia Siddons' telephone rang at home and it was Dot Brooks. The one-sided conversation went as follows. I want you to come and see me. Mick did it. He killed Lynn. I'll tell you all about it and prepared to make and sign a full statement. I'll even go to court and give evidence against the bastard. Boom. Are you having that or what? Straight away, overjoyed, because Cynthia was now thinking, this has got to put him in the dock, was straight around to collect Flo and Gale, and then they were off to number 59 Macklin Street, where Dot Brooks invited them in. Now the tale she was to tell the Siddonses, they passed on to their solicitor, John Vinicom, who in turn arranged for a retired police superintendent that he contracted, Ossie Lloyd, to take Dot's statement, which she gave and signed three days later, on Wednesday the 30th of April 1980. Because it took nearly four hours for her to tell a story, as you can imagine, it was nearly as lengthy as one of my episode intros. So I'll recount here in the order that she told the story to the Siddonses, but using the available extracts from Dot's statement, in full, because it's crucially important to the tale too, and that's what we do here, isn't it? So get yourself a cuppa, because there's quite a bit to this, but as always, you go big or you go home, don't you? Dot began by describing the strange habits of Michael Brooks and the bizarre sex life that the Brookses had. She said in her statement, My son, Fitzroy Patrick Joseph, was born on the 13th of March, 1963. I was 15 years of age when he was born. His father's name is Joseph August. 
I met Michael Brooks in August 1964 and after about six months on the 19th of February 1965 we got married. Roy lived with us and Michael accepted him as his son. It was only about two months after we were married that I realised Michael had rather strange ways. I realised he did not give me sexual satisfaction. He really only had sex for his own satisfaction. At first he used to get me to stand up against the wall in the house. At first when I was fully clothed. When he would prod my stomach with his thumb. He got me to lift up my clothes and he would masturbate himself. He asked me to masturbate him but I refused to do this. I got the impression that by going through the actions of prodding me, he had some idea that he was stabbing me, which gave him sexual satisfaction. Later on, he would do this when I was naked or with very few clothes on. He never had sex with me when he did this. I was bothered about this, and because of this and the fact that we didn't have a very satisfactory sexual relationship, I begged him to go and seek medical help. He refused to do this, saying he would try to overcome this, but he made no attempt to do so. It was when I was pregnant that Michael seemed to do the prodding of my stomach all the more. Before my daughter was born, Michael didn't go out with other women, but after she was born, Michael used to go to all-night parties, and I heard about other women. He seemed to have always been interested in young women aged between 16 and 18 years of age. It was after we'd been married about two years that he would prod me with a knife. It was a small table knife at first, then a carving knife. He used to use a carving knife which was kept in the house. He used to have a change of expression. He looked wild and he used to get me to close my eyes because he said if I kept my eyes open, it stopped him from concentrating. This worried me quite a lot. This has been happening wherever we've been living and this continued right up until the 3rd of April 1980 when Michael left home. Now the next part of her statement dovetailed with what Roy had said at his trial about his stepfather's traits. Dot went on. I used to see Michael stabbing pictures of nude women in a men's magazine and women in underclothes and catalogues. I found a number of these magazines and catalogues in the bedroom behind the wardrobe and these were mutilated with stab wounds in the stomach of the people in the pictures. Also, some of the photographs were slit down from the throat of the person and down through the stomach. I challenged him about this and he said, It's none of your business. You shouldn't be so fucking nosy. As long as it's not you, you have nothing to worry about. When a film on Jack the Ripper came to Derby, Michael took me to see it and all through the film he was very excited, concentrating on it and looking wild as though he seemed to be living the whole thing through. He spoke about the film frequently after this and this seemed to make him do more of the prodding of my body with knives. He also went to see a film about cannibals and he told me how they killed a nurse or a nun and cut her up and ate the intestines. He lived this also. On a number of occasions Michael would get me to lie across the bed with my head overhanging the side of the bed and with a knife in his hand he would be prodding me and he would be saying when he was stabbing me I'm stabbing you and I'm going to cut your head off. But I realised this only satisfied his sexual desires. Date nights must have been fun and games there, eh? Right bloody go on the big dipper that, isn't it? Crucially, Dot went on to describe a sheath knife that she'd discovered on top of the couple's bedroom wardrobe when they lived in Carlisle Street. She'd asked Michael Brooks about it and he denied all knowledge but told her to leave it where it was in no uncertain terms when she hinted that she was going to throw it away. She said in her statement, 
I did put the sheath knife in the dustbin, but it seemed to turn up in the house again. I asked Roy about it because he told me it was his. This was why I threw it away again. When I asked him when it turned up again, he said he knew nothing about it. I was cleaning Roy's room out and I found this suede type of sheath and I thought about this knife. I asked Roy if he's had it and he said he hadn't, so I pointed out the sheath to him and he said that was all he had left now. I saw no harm in him keeping it and it was left in the bedroom. Perhaps the knife mentioned here was the one that was found buried in the back garden of number 27, the one that Derbyshire Constabulary lost. It's never been found. The Siddons family believed that this knife Dot was describing was the other knife used to kill Lynn, separate from the carving type knife that Roy had mentioned in both of his accounts. Now Dot then went on to give her account of events on the day Lynn disappeared, the day of her murder. She said that Lynn had called around, she'd agreed to go with Roy to see about the farm job, and after changing her footwear, Lynn and Roy had left the house, whilst Michael had left at the same time in the opposite direction, off to his mother's. Not too long afterwards, apparently, Roy had returned, and when asked where Lynn was, he replied that he didn't know. He then repeated his account of relieving himself in red wood, and when he'd come out, Lynn had vanished. Dot said in a statement, Roy did not seem strange in his manner, but one thing I thought was unusual was that he didn't come and sit down in the room, he just stood in the doorway. He didn't look any different when he went out, he was not uneasy. She furthered that when Michael Brooks had arrived home, and she told him about Lynn going off, he said, Oh, leave her, she'll come back when she's ready. Dot continued, I recall that when Michael came home on the Monday afternoon, he'd gone into the bathroom as soon as he came into the house. The bathroom is on the ground floor, and he'd gone upstairs after, and when he came down, I saw that he'd changed his trousers. Several days later, after the police had been to the house a lot, I came into the living room and I found Michael making a fire. He had the trousers in his hand, and he burnt them on the fire. I asked him why he was doing this, and he said that they were torn. I asked him to let me see them and said that if they were torn in the seam that I could mend them, but he wouldn't let me see them. I also saw him burn the sheath knife. I asked him why he was doing this and he said he'd seen it either in the bathroom or upstairs, but he gave me no reason for burning it. The next morning, Michael cleaned the fireplace out and I saw that he put the ashes in the dustbin. Also, during the days leading up to the discovery of Lynn's body, the police had spoken to Roy on a number of occasions, and Dot recalled, Michael seemed to be keeping very close to Roy that week. Roy was staying up late. He was very worried. When I tried to talk to Roy, Michael used to tell me just to leave him alone. Following the trial, Dot told how she'd kept on at her husband to tell her exactly what had happened. Was Roy lying to save himself? Or was there any truth to his second statement? I was always on at him as I felt that sooner or later he'd tell me what had happened. Every time I spoke to him, he was worried. When the government was discussing the return of capital punishment, Michael was concerned about this and said that if they ever found out anything, he would get hung. When I asked him what they could find out, he very angrily said, Nothing. I knew he was on edge. It was about the end of March. Michael and I was in the house together and I was getting on at him to tell me. He was convinced the police had bugged the house. I was talking about Lynn and how she'd been left down in the woods, and he turned to me and said, You're on about that again. I said that it must have been terrible what she'd gone through down there, and he said, 
If you must know, I did kill Lynn and I fucking enjoyed it. Her statement then gave the version of Lynn's killing as Dot had heard it from Michael Brooks. Now the following contains graphic descriptions of a crime as well as the use of a racial slur. I was flabbergasted and Michael then told me that they'd gone up the street with Lynn and he'd gone to Sinfin Lane and telephoned his mother and found that she wasn't in. That was my alibi, he said. He said he'd rushed down Sinfin Lane and out across the golf course to cut them off. He was at the edge of the field when he was going down and Lynn had asked him what he was doing there. He told me, she soon knew what I was fucking doing down there. Michael said they'd all walked along the canal and he was behind Lynn and Roy. They went in these bushes and he came behind Lynn and put his arm right round her neck to hold her and he wanted Roy to hit her or something and he wouldn't do it. He said, I told Lynn I had a present for her and when she'd asked what it was, he had a knife and stuck it in. He said Roy would not do anything saying, he's like all the blacks, he's a yellow bastard, he's got no guts, he was all talk and no action. I said, why should you do that? She's done you no harm. He said, she's like the rest of them. She's a slut. I asked him what did happen in the woods and he said, I kept stabbing her but she wouldn't die. I asked him what Roy was doing and he said, he just stood trembling and frightened. He then went on to say he dragged her to some water and put her head down in it. He held her down with his hands in it and put his foot on her head. Not hard but enough to keep her head down. He said that when he turned her over, he saw soil in her mouth, and he said he put a load more soil in her mouth. He said, Roy would not help me. He said he dragged her back and put her where no one could find her. When I asked him about the wounds on her, he turned round and said he tried to stab her through her jeans, but the knife would not go in at first. So he undid her zip and stabbed her that way, with the zip open. He said he got his two hands on the knife and tried to rip her down, but it was too hard. I asked him about her clothes and he said he'd pulled them up to make it look when she was found as if someone had tried to rape her. I said that Roy had to go through all of that because of him and he said that he told Roy what to say. If he'd kept his mouth shut none of this would have happened but he couldn't. I'm in all this trouble through him opening his mouth. But I had the laugh of him in court and I have the laugh of them again. They will never hold me because there'll be a number two before they get me and I can only be done for one. He also said, if you open your mouth to the law, you'll end up like Lynn, because the next time I'll make a bloody good job of it. Unreal that, eh? Beginning at 9.30 on the morning of Wednesday the 30th of April, this account took almost four hours to tell and be transcribed, but the statement was signed by D.M. Brooks and witnessed by Ossie Lloyd. She made a similar statement again only two days later to a researcher of Philip Whitehead's, Helen Goodman, which was again signed by D.M. Brooks and witnessed by Helen, copies of which were retained by the Siddons family and were handed to police. Dot even said to Flo Siddons, after asking the family to try and find Brooks, Fetch me a tape recorder. When Mick comes back, I'll turn it on and put it under the bed. I'll get him to talk about the murder and what he did to Lynn while we're making love. You'll have your confession all on the tape. Now the campaigning and determined side of the Siddons family must have been over the moon with this statement because it's quite a remarkable statement that isn't it? It's very colourful and detailed 
and it really does read as though it's being recollected from memory as opposed to a cobbled together load of old horse shit, doesn't it? Bloody smoking gun, pretty much. But the sight of the family that was still reeling and devastated and grieving for Lynn, you have to try and think, how difficult and awful must that have been for them to hear? Because it is graphic, isn't it? I thought it was a horrendous account as I was typing it, so for the poor family to have to hear that, my heart really went out to them. Armed with this statement, a few days later the Siddons family now headed over to the east coast of the UK. They knew Brooks was living in the Mablethorpe area, they knew he was trying to work on the funfair there, they had pictures of his ugly mug, and the name and the description of the girl he'd scurried off with, Carol Dunworth. Though they asked everyone working at the Mablethorpe fair, person after person they spoke to couldn't help, until one man said that he did recognise him, identifying him as Mick. The Siddons family were dismayed to learn that he'd moved on though, until the man told them that he knew Brooks had rented a caravan in the back garden of a house, 18 miles down the coast in Skegness. However, the fairground worker didn't have an exact address for Brooks. Now undaunted by this, because trying to find a specific caravan in a seaside town must be like looking for a piece of hay in a massive stack full of needles, can tell I watched Blackadder the other night, the Siddenses set off down to Skegness and spent hours driving around all of the roads and side streets leading out of the town, looking for the one that Brooks and his new lover were living in. They must have looked at countless ones they thought may be the one, and when they eventually struck Lucky, recognising the grubby washing hanging on the makeshift clothesline outside, when they crept up and peered through the window, sure enough, there was Michael Brooks. Having dinner with his wife Dot and their daughter Tracy. Brooks froze when he saw the face of John Halford looking through the window at him, and the Siddons family were livid. Brooks should have been there with his lover, of whom there was no sign. Indeed, it all looked very happy families from what they could see. There were angry words and threats to burn the caravan down that the Siddons family are keen to stress were just hollow words, although so furious and crestfallen were they about what they'd seen, that had Tracy Brooks not been there, there may very well have been violence. Heading to a pub across the road from the caravan to discuss this, they watched from the pub window as a police car soon pulled up at the caravan and two officers went inside. Brooks, in obvious fear for his life, had contacted police when he'd seen the Siddons family outside his caravan. There may well have been bloodshed had the police not arrived, because Dot Brooks's presence in the caravan meant only one thing to the Siddonses. Even though she'd come forward to them spontaneously, she'd clearly changed her mind about informing on her husband because she'd decided that she wanted him back and so would withdraw the statement that she'd made to police. Sure enough, based on this statement, Michael Brooks was spoken to by police, but he explained the situation as being absolute crap, just the words of a scorned woman fabricated to cause him discomfort and distress, and with Dot Brooks telling police that she'd made it up, regardless of anyone reading it surely thinking, hang on, there's a bloody ring of truth to this. She couldn't be made to testify against a husband under the common law term of spousal privilege. Now this was codified somewhat under the Pace Act 1984 to allow in limited cases for the testimony of the spouse to be compelled by the prosecution. But this was four years before that and it didn't help the Siddons one bit. They were back to square one. 
So back to the campaign then. The letters, the posters, watching number 57 Macklin Street, refusing to be beaten, even though it seemed it was one step forward, two steps back, refusing until they had justice for Lynn. Dot Brooks wouldn't have had many Christmas cards that year, such was her popularity, and the Siddons family seethed about her betrayal, the impulsive Cynthia especially. It was she who, during one of the telephone calls from Dot, when claiming she was adamant she didn't want Brooks back, and that she would make a statement about his confessed involvement in Lynn's killing, would even testify in court to this effect, told Dot, Don't you let us down. If you ever go back on that statement, I'll have you. And Dot had done just that. No doubt wanting to remonstrate, they'd watched the Brooks house countlessly, for Michael Brooks had soon returned to the family home once back with his wife, having split with Carol Dunworth, who was by that time pregnant with his child. But the Brooks family had gone out less than the Olympic flame over the next couple of months. They kept a real low profile. Until the 3rd of September 1980, when Cynthia, couriering some car parts to the Derbyshire County Council Highways Depot at Ambergate, passed Michael and Dot Brooks hitchhiking on the A6 Duffield Road that heads in the same direction she was travelling north out of Derby. She continued on her journey, delivered her parts, and some 40 minutes later whilst making the return journey back to Derby, as she drove into the town of Belper, spotted Michael and Dot Brooks stood on the pavement outside the town's fire station, a distance of around 8 miles from where she'd earlier saw them. This is how impulsive Cynthia was. She then spanned the wheel and drove the car directly at the Brookses. Now it didn't hit either of them, it merely caused them to scatter across the road out of the way. But Cynthia then spanned the car around and chased them into a layby outside the fire station, causing the pair of them to vault a low wall and climb a low embankment so Cynthia couldn't pursue them further. Yet she sat there with the engine revving like Mad Max, just daring them to come down. Their nerve went before hers did, and climbing over the embankment, Michael and Dot Brooks sought sanctuary in the former St. Lawrence Convent on Field Lane. Speaking of the incident later, Cynthia said, I don't know what was in my mind. I don't think I intended to run them over. I don't think I have it in me to kill. But I just didn't want them to get away. I just took my car across the road and drove it at them, going right up onto the curb. The A6 is a busy road, but luckily nothing was coming, so I was able to drive right across the road. I wasn't in a blind red rage, as I remember checking in my mirror that there was nothing coming before chasing them across the road. I think my intention was to frighten them, to give them a really good scare. They wondered what I was going to do when they were on the embankment. They were only 10 yards from me, it was real eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball stuff before they ran off to the convent. The following morning, Thursday the 4th of September, Cynthia attended Alfreton Police Station, Brooks having telephoned police from the convent. Following being in custody for more than three hours, Cynthia was bailed to appear in court at a later date. The charge? Attempted murder. Now the case didn't come to court in Alfreton until more than six months later, on Monday the 30th of March 1981, due to no less than four adjournments in the interim because of the non-appearances each time of Michael and Dot Brooks, and by that time, the charge had been reduced to one of reckless driving. However, Cynthia pleaded not guilty to this charge. She was, of course she was, 
but there was an underlying motive to a plea. By pleading not guilty, it meant that Doc Brooks would have to appear in the witness box and speak on oath, exactly what the Siddons wanted, because then, their solicitor Bernard Horcroft could cross-examine her about the possible motive for Cynthia's action, and they could bring up the statement that she'd made that way. Boom. Horcroft began by asking Dot about the telephone call she'd made to Cynthia in April of the previous year, in which she'd said Michael Brooks had confessed to Lynn's murder, thereby confirming his statement to the police. However, although she admitted saying that in the phone call, she refused point-blank to answer any other questions when probed about the statement she'd made and why she'd retracted it, claiming the matter had nothing to do with the case in question that they were there for, or with anyone else. She would not be shaken on this either. Cynthia was found guilty of the reckless driving charge and was fined the total of some £400 when added together with court costs and legal fees, which Flo paid in full for her, entirely understanding of her daughter's actions. It made all the newspapers, and of course, because Brooks had been mentioned in open court, the newspapers could now report on the background to the case without any fear of libel or contempt claims. Hence headlines such as that of the Sun tabloid, which the day following the case read, The Vengeance of Auntie Cynthia. In the interim period before the trial, the Brooks family had moved house once again in an attempt to get away from being harassed, from getting letters and telephone calls, and from having Flo Brooks staring at the house each morning, and had moved to number 44 Beaufort Street, again in the centre of Derby. By this time, Roy Brooks had returned to live with his family also, having been released from the care of the Pastures Hospital. Michael Brooks also changed his surname to Goodwood in a half-hearted attempt to stay under the radar, but he made no further real effort to, and pretty soon all of his new neighbours knew who he was, his reputation having spread far and wide. They began calling him Murderer Mick, and indeed he seemed to revel in his notoriety, not changing any of his behaviour one bit. Reportedly, before it was common knowledge that Mick Goodwood was actually Michael Brooks, and some of the neighbours were on friendly terms and associated with the new tenants. He would make sick jokes about Lynn's death and hint at his responsibility for the murder, and would continue throwing knives and darts at pictures of naked women. So already, he's not in the frame to be the next mayor or anything. But then the inevitable happened. After they'd been living in Beaufort Street for 18 months, one night each of the Brooks' house windows were smashed with stones and graffiti began appearing on the wall outside the house. It even went as far as affecting Roy, who was trying to make a fresh start for himself at Derby Technical College, when some of his classmates painted graffiti on a wall there, denouncing him as a murderer. Now although of course the Siddons family had soon found out where the Brookses had moved to from Macklin Street, there's nothing to suggest that these actions were solely down to them or agents acting for them. Brooks had received anonymous letters and telephone calls before, whereas Flo Siddons was quite adamant that every letter she wrote to him, she signed with her own name, refusing to hide away. So this could have equally been sympathetic outraged locals with a mob mentality. I mean, you know how strong public opinion can spill over into things like this. Just think, for example, of the scenes each time Thompson and Venables, who need no introduction, were being driven away from court. The public acts independently out of their own horror and outrage sometimes, don't they? 
realising that there was no peace to be had simply moving from one address to another in the Derby area, as this would keep happening, it was time for a proper move much further afield. Through assistance from the police and social workers acting on behalf of the family, arrangements were made for the Brooks family to head some 75 miles away from Derby to the Westwood estate in the city of Peterborough in Cambridgeshire on a council house exchange. The tenant they were exchanging houses with, Shane Morley, was a Derby native who wanted to return to the area to be nearer to his mother, and had known something of the Lynn Siddons murder, although it didn't dawn on him immediately who Brooks was. However, the more the two men talked, and even when they went out for a Saturday afternoon pint to the former Lord Westwood pub on the estate, the more Shane Morley found Brooks to be odd, there was just something about the guy that he couldn't quite put his finger on. And then it started dawning on him, Lynn Siddons and all that bother that had been in the newspapers since. When Michael Brooks went to the toilet, having broken the pint seal, Shane asked Roy Brooks if the reason they were moving from Derby was because they'd had something to do with the Lynn Siddons murder, and Roy replied, Yes, my dad did it, but don't say anything, don't mention I've told you. Now Shane thought Roy was winding him up somewhat, because who confesses murder to a complete stranger? So when Brooks returned from the toilet, after another couple of pints, Shane thought bollocks to this, and brought up the subject of Lynn's murder, which Brooks was very chatty about, and then testing him, Shane asked him outright if he'd killed Lynn Siddons, to which Brooks replied, yes, yes I did, but they will never catch me. Shane Morley put this down to just idle boasting because again, who confesses murder to a complete stranger and at the time did nothing, thinking undoubtedly that this was simply a prick and a half prick showing off and acting the big I am. Shane was still thinking that when he and his family had exchanged houses with the Brooks and they were back in Derby. By some three years after Lynn had been murdered, just before the Brooks family had moved to Peterborough and once Cynthia's Dukes of Hazard moment had been put to rest by the court, the Siddons family took stock of their campaign. Yeah, it was fine letting Brooks know he hadn't been forgotten and whilst the newspapers were highlighting their campaign, it wasn't moving anything forward. The potential physical evidence had been lost by Derbyshire police and Dot Brooks had about as much chance of giving a statement in evidence as you or I have of getting a Covid test. So they now issued an appeal in the newspapers themselves, hoping that it may turn up a fresh witness or bring some new information. There wasn't a thing that the Siddons family wouldn't do. The appeal duly appeared as a story in the Derby Trader newspaper a short time later, and it did bring results. A copy of the Derby Trader containing the appeal found its way into Leicester Prison, where it was passed around the inmates to read until it was read by a burglar, a local Derby fellow named Keith Hibbert, and his friend and cellmate, Clive Shirtcliffe. Both recalled a strange conversation they'd had with Michael Brooks, whom Hibbert had known since childhood, back in mid-1978. Now they were certain it was around this time, because it was the same day that Hibbert had successfully applied for bail at Derby Magistrates Court, facing charges of burglary, and Roy Brooks had appeared before the court just before he had. It was during Hibbert's appearance that he'd noticed Michael Brooks sat in the court. Now due to family complications, because Hibbert's sister Carol was Michael Brooks's sister-in-law, he didn't really want to get involved. But Shirtcliffe, 
horrified as cons are with a code of honour and despisal of sex killers and the like, insisted that he must talk, and he himself wrote to Philip Whitehead, whose name had been mentioned also in the article. The letter filtered through to Philip, and eventually police did come to see Hibbert, and both he and Shirtcliffe were to later give statements to a solicitor acting on behalf of the Siddons family. In part, Hibbert's statement reads as follows. I attended Derby Magistrates Court on a date I cannot remember, and successfully applied for bail. Roy Brooks was also present, his appearance was just before mine, I noticed Mick Brooks in court. After I was released, I went for a drink with Clive Shirtcliffe, Dougie Smith and several others, and we went to a number of different pubs. I noticed Mick in the first pub, then the second, and then in Jimmy's, in brackets meaning the St James Hotel. In Jimmy's, I was standing near the bar with the others and Mick was standing behind me. I can't remember who spoke to who first. He asked me if he could have a word with me, so we went and sat down. I can't remember the exact words of the conversation, but it was about the murder of Lynn Siddons, and I hadn't heard of this. He asked me if I'd seen his lad. He explained that he'd been up for that murder, and I then realised the one he was talking about. As that lad was black, I said something like, What's it to do with you? And he said he was his lad. Mick asked how to get a message to him, and I replied something to the effect that I couldn't help. Mick seemed to know that if you were done for something like child murder or rape, you had to go on Rule 43. He asked me what it was like, and I said nobody wants to know you. At some point, I asked him why he was asking these questions, and he said, Well, we're both involved. The impression I got was that Mick was claiming that they'd both murdered her, though I cannot remember what exact words he used. When I realised this, I walked off. Clive Shirtcliffe's statement corroborated this account completely. Now the statements were taken before the Director of Public Prosecutions, but possibly due to the lengthy criminal records of each man, and this making them unreliable, it was decided that the statements did not constitute strong enough evidence to bring any charges against Michael Brooks. Bearing in mind how many times are things like buried knives, burned clothes and detailed statements with him admitting the murder, stuff that made Michael Brooks look guiltier than Bill Cosby, going to come across your desk and you're just there spangled doing bugger all about it. That is me being somewhat flippant there, it was probably a mix of unfortunate events and a very fine legal tightrope but it still exasperates, doesn't it? Shortly after these statements were made, Brooks, meanwhile, gave an interview. It was to be his final one, to the Derby Trader newspaper. He told how his life had been a nightmare since the murder, and once again denied his involvement when challenged. When asked about the statement that his wife had made, and then retracted, Brooks replied, A lot of people think I came back to Dot because of that statement to make her take it back. That wasn't it. I came back to see Tracy because she wouldn't let Tracy come and see me. He went on. I didn't kill Lynn and I will not admit to something I didn't do just to stop this campaign. My life has been made hell these last three years and even if I was charged with a murder, I would never get a fair trial. I've been barred from nightclubs, had bricks thrown through my window and insults hurled at me and my family as we've walked around the city. I never go out now, I'm a prisoner in my own house. Last time I went into a pub, I was spat upon by a group of girls. I really dread picking up the paper and reading about a murder or assault. I know I'll be suspected, 
not only by the police, but by everyone who recognises me. He then denied the statement by Keith Hibbert, claiming it was a bare-faced lie, and challenged him to come forward and prove it, and when asked about how he felt about the Siddons family suffering, told the newspaper, I am sympathetic, of course, but what can I do to satisfy them? I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. Shortly after this, he and his family had buggered off to live in Peterborough. Now someone else, apart from the Siddons, who was disturbed about the way Derbyshire police had handled the investigation from the off, was the new Chief Constable Alfred Parrish when he was appointed in April 1981. Flo of course arranged to see him, not letting up for a second or wasting any chance to speak to anyone who may be in a position to kickstart the process of bringing Lynn's killer to justice. And to his credit, as a result he did order a fresh investigation. Two senior officers from the Derbyshire Force, Chief Superintendent Jim Reddington and Superintendent Roy Morton, were commissioned to re-interview all of the witnesses spoken to in the initial investigation and themselves sift through all evidence relating to Lynn's murder with a fine tooth comb. Now they did uncover a wealth of fresh evidence from this, although what this fresh evidence exactly constituted I was unable to discover. Their investigation lasted the best part of a year however, and by March 1982, armed with these files, felt they were in a position to once again approach the Director of Public Prosecutions to see if charges could be brought against suspect number one, Michael Brooks. And once again, the DPP was unreceptive. After a six-month review of this fresh evidence, a statement was issued in September 1982 saying that there was insufficient admissible evidence to mount a successful prosecution against Michael Brooks. Shortly after this decision was announced, Superintendent Morton resigned from the Derbyshire force. Officially, he wouldn't be drawn into the exact reasons why, but privately told friends and colleagues that the way Derbyshire police had handled the murder of Lynn Siddons, the investigation and their failure to resolve the case was a large part of it. He was ashamed and disgusted with it. Shame and disgust. I can but imagine how the Siddons family felt at the same time, perhaps crushed or gutted are better words there. Four years had gone by since their Lynn was taken from them, and in that time they'd proper fought for justice, relentlessly, looking where the police didn't seem to. They'd searched and found highly suggestive evidence, a knife and burnt clothing, that they'd then seen lost by police. They'd had more than one statement implying Michael Brooks's guilt, including one from his own wife, and another person who knew Brooks and who'd stated that he'd admitted his involvement to him, and they'd knocked on every door they could, written to every possible person in power that they thought may be able to help, the Home Secretary, the Prime Minister, they would have probably tried to hire the bloody A-team if they could have done. And finally, finally, after three years, they'd got a reinvestigation, which the DPP then ultimately decided had not produced enough evidence for a realistic prosecution and refused to sanction charges. How would you feel, eh? So did they give up? Of course they didn't. This family didn't know the meaning of that. And in the next episode, we shall hear how the Siddons continued their fight for justice and how the turning point came when they made a new friend in a position of power because that's a perfect place to leave it for this time. I told you there was quite a bit to this tale, didn't I? But it's certainly one worth telling and doing justice to. 
Justice was almost the title of the arc, actually, because we love an arc here, we do, regardless of people who put on reviews that they moan about the use of an arc. Get a like, stop being so highly strung. So once again, I won't wrap up as I usually do here with me spouting my own guff at the end. I'll save that for the conclusion next part. It's no maniac or South Wales slayer out this one. A simple trilogy will do it. I'd like to thank all of you for joining me here today for part two of A Family's Fight, The Haunting of Michael Brooks. If you want to chip in and give your thoughts and any feedback so far, then please do. The thread's up where it usually is, but give me a tickle on Twitter or Instagram email me it's up to you guys i'm always happy to talk wherever with that i'll wrap it up and get stuck into part three so all that remains for me to say is as ever i've been i still am and hopefully still will be paul the true crime enthusiast wishing you guys good and safe times in these uncertain ones that we're in stay safe and i shall speak to you all soon take care folks and goodbye for now